Rosemary's Hit List, the official companion podcast, is a Killer Audio Creations production. It is produced on request of Showmax. The content, opinions, and views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily the views of Showmax, Killer Audio Creations, or any of its affiliates or sponsors. This podcast may contain disturbing subject matter, and this should be taken into consideration when listening. Welcome to the official companion podcast to the Showmax original documentary, Rosemary's Hit List. I'm Nicole Engelbrecht. You may know me from the True Crime South Africa podcast or one of the other Showmax companion podcasts, Devil's Dorp or Stella Murders. I'm extremely grateful to have been asked back by Showmax to create another companion podcast for their latest true crime documentary about the recently convicted serial killer, Rosemary Ndlovu. And this time, I'm absolutely elated to be joined for the first time by a co-host. I first connected with Mfundo Ndala when I started the True Crime South Africa podcast back in 2019, and I was looking for other South African true crime content creators. We were few and far between back then, and although there are a few more of us now, the OGs still stay in touch. When Showmax suggested that a co-host would be a good idea for this companion pod, my thoughts immediately went to Mfundo. She and I share the same ethical core around true crime, I believe. The way she creates content on YouTube about South African crimes is victim-focused, non-sensationalist, and just really well put together. If you've been following my journey and supporting me as a true crime creator over the years, I'd love it if you would support and embrace Mfundo in the same way. You can find her on YouTube. Her channel is Mfundo Ndala, and her Instagram handle is It's Mfundo Ndala. Please follow her there and help to grow the ethical true crime community in South Africa. So, Rosemary's hit list. Two words come to mind about this case. Absolutely mind-blowing. And really, it would be easy to be swept away in the craziness and sensational nature of this case. And in addition, despite the documentary revealing so much interesting information and really mapping out this case beautifully, there are always limitations to the television medium. And that's where this podcast comes in. The purpose of any companion podcast, this one included, is to further delve into the themes and questions raised in the documentary it's a companion to. This podcast will consist of four episodes, each delving down into a different element of the case, and will also interview some of the participants you met in the documentary. This is episode one, Insured for Death. Life insurance and funeral policies play a major role in this case, so Mfundo and I thought it was important to start this series with a deep dive into that aspect. What are these policies? Why are they important? How did Rosemary use them to her advantage? What were the implications of what she did for the victims' families, beyond the devastating loss of their loved ones? And what can be done to stop the next Rosemary? The concept of life insurance is always something that I have been wary of, and I think that is largely influenced by my consumption of true crime and the well-known four L's for murder motives, namely love, lust, loathing, or loot. Where serial killers are involved, which as far as I know is how Rosemary is being classified, the loot is really a motivating aspect which I think makes this case particularly interesting. Most serial killers are driven by a lust, the desire for power, the desire for sexual gratification and control. Her motives for the crimes fall into the loot, which is the financial gain, and to some degree, the loathing or revenge categories. When it comes to analyzing Rosemary's hit list, I think it's important to distinguish between life insurance and funeral policies. Had this been a case of taking out multiple life insurance policies against people, I think she would have been found out sooner 
because it is a more rigorous application process and not just anyone can have a life insurance policy against you. The funeral policies provided Rosemary with a lower barrier to entry and the ability to open many policies against many people in what was believed to be good faith because of the differing nature of the two types of insurances. So I think we should start exactly there. What exactly is life insurance? And what is a funeral policy? You'll remember Edward Suweya from Rosemary's Hit List. He kindly agreed to sit down with us to discuss the insurance industry. My name is uh, Edward Suweya, and I am uh, an independent financial consultant specializing in the area of insurance uh, advice, retirement planning, investment planning, as well as uh, trust and estates. My actual experience spans since 2005. I am the managing director of a company called Net Wealth Analytics, which is an authorized financial service provider, authorized by the Financial Sector Conduct Authority under license 45110. Edward Suwea is passionate about financial planning and insurance. He's pretty much the guy you want to talk to about financial matters, because he's going to tell you how it is, not how you'd like to imagine it should be. Between the three of us, we all agreed that it wouldn't be a great idea to give people a roadmap on how to commit insurance fraud. So in places, Edward is careful with his words and what he shares, and that's totally understandable. Our first question to Edward was about the difference between life insurance and funeral policies. I would like to take this opportunity to dwell in detail around the area of life insurance as well as funeral policies. What I would like to discuss in the main is to indeed take listeners on differentiation between the two. And uh, further broaden the understanding around this subject matter. What I will actually outline is the following. One is a life cover. What is the purpose of one having to take up a life cover? And equally, what is funeral policy? And what is the purpose for one to ensure that they take a funeral policy? The first explanation that I would like to give, it is in relation to what is life insurance policy and also explain the purpose of a life policy. Uh, but before I get there, let me Hasten to say that there are serious distinctions between funeral policies as well as life policies. For example, funeral policies in the main and in South Africa are the entry points to a life policy, meaning funeral policies are regarded as entry into the life insurance space. Majority of the people do not start by taking life insurance. They start by taking a funeral policy, then thereafter graduate into taking life policy. However, it does not mean that you can't actually get life insurance in an instant or as a first resort. What is the difference between life insurance as well as funeral policy? Life insurance by definition, is an insurance that is taken to protect a particular circumstances. That circumstance can be to protect your spouse, to protect your children, to protect spouse and or children against the potential devastating financial losses. Let me explain what I mean by this. 
Here I am, it's me and my spouse, we've got children. I am the sole breadwinner in my household, or my spouse is working as much as I am working. Then we've got joint household income, if both of us are working. If that is the case, then the question becomes, because now we've got a joint household income, let's assume I'm bringing 20,000 rent to the household, and my spouse is bringing 20,000 rent. It means jointly, we live our lifestyle on 40,000 per month. So then the question then becomes, how will my spouse and my children survive if my 20,000 was not on the table on a month-to-month basis? Then that is where the potential risk or devastation comes in. Therefore. To ensure against that particular 20,000, I will then take up a life insurance policy uh, which will insure my life to ensure that if I pass on, then a lump sum is paid to my spouse uh, so that it can mitigate against the risk of not having the 20,000 per month that I was bringing home. So that is the fundamental reason for one to take life insurance. So let's take, for example, someone who has got um, a house uh, which was acquired through a bond and uh, you find that the house is 400,000 and the bond that I was granted by the bank, it's 100%, meaning that they've granted me 100% of the bond loan, meaning it's 400,000 that now I owe the bank. That house then, it's categorized as an asset. The liability is the bond, which is 400,000 rand. Then I'm able then to balance the two because the asset is the house. The 400,000 rand bond is the liability. So I'm able to take up a life insurance policy so that in the event of death, the 400,000 pays towards the bonds and settle the bond 100%. And it it is able to convert that property into a full 100% asset, where then the bank, after the surviving members who I've nominated as beneficiaries to pay the bank, or if I've nominated the bank as a beneficiary upon my death, then the bond will be paid. Then um, the house become an asset. Then my family will then get what they call title deeds. So that is the whole strategy around one needing to have a life insurance, meaning the strategic objective and the need is that if you want to protect your spouse or children, spouse and children, or any other immediate family member from potentially devastating financial losses, that could result in the event of death. So effectively, the whole objective is to pro- provide financial security to assist in paying off debts and also to assist in making sure that my family is able to pay for living expenses and any other expenses that might emerge as a consequence of one passing on. So that is what life insurance is for. However, funeral policy, it is a policy that is taken to protect against financial demand as a consequence of death, either of myself as a life insured or those family members that are toward. I'll give you an example. Many members take up funeral policy because they are trying to mitigate the risk of not having enough financial resources at the time of burial. Therefore, if that is the case, you don't have adequate financial resources to actually pay in the event of death, either of self or of immediate family member who is maybe spouse, children, or extended family members. Then you take up a funeral policy so that when there is death in the family, then you know that the funeral policy amount will pay. And its objective will be to take care of the cost related to the funeral.
Another important concept that Edward explains is that of insurable interest. So I can't just pick a random person and take out life insurance or a funeral policy on them. I have to have what is called an insurable interest invested in that person. So that person's death has to financially impact me in some tangible way in terms of either loss of income or some other financial asset, or a potential expense such as a funeral, which I would be directly responsible for should that person pass away. And that's really the key in these cases, and also a bit of a blurry line. Rosemary did have insurable interests in her victims, in terms of her being either a family member or a partner of those people. But if we look a little deeper, she wouldn't have experienced a financial loss as a result of their deaths, only really if she had to pay for their funerals. Her being one of the only people employed in her family, it would make sense for her to not only be the holder of these policies, but also the beneficiary as she would be the one making the payments. That is not at all to say that she deserved the money. She directly caused and then benefited from their deaths, which is honestly beyond sane comprehension, especially when you take into account that she robbed people of the opportunity to be parents and children of the privilege of growing up with their parents. To me, that is particularly cruel. So now that we understand the difference between these policies, we thought it was important to understand the three parties that make up either a life insurance or a funeral policy. Because in order to really understand this case, we need to know what role each of those parties played in the fraud and the murders. There are three parties to a life insurance or funeral policy. The first party is the life insured. The life insured is an individual whose life has been insured that in the event that person dies or passes on, then policy will pay. But where does the policy pay? Then there is a beneficiary. A beneficiary is an individual who has been stipulated in the policy contract of the life insurance. So the beneficiary is the recipient of money which is paid in the event of death of the life insured. Then there is a policyholder. A policyholder, it might as well be the life insured or it might be someone else. But 9 out of 10 policyholders are life insured. So to summarize, we have three parties on a life insurance or funeral policy. An insured person, the beneficiary, and the policyholder. If I take out a funeral policy on my partner, which will pay out to me in the event of my partner's death... I am both the policyholder and the beneficiary, and my partner is the insured. That situation is less common than my partner phoning in to take out their own funeral policy, in which case they would become both the policyholder and the insured, and I would be the beneficiary. Now, how is this important in this case? Now, I know that these terminologies are confusing, but they are meant to assist in all of us understanding how Rosemary Glovu was able to ensure as many people as she did in the manner in which she did at ease. It's because of all this arrangement. So one, there must be insurable interest for one to be able to take policies. Two, there are parties to the relationship. The first is the policyholder or owner. The second is the life insured. The third is the beneficiary. The fourth is the premium payer. This one who we regard as the premium payer is someone who is paying the premium on a month-to-month basis. 99% of the time, the policy owner is the premium payer. When you look at Rosemary Grove, 
she actually insured family members a husband a child a nephew a sister this and that all of those people there is an insurable interest she did not go and insure colleagues at the SAPS now within the life insurance space it is not easy to just insure distance relatives it's not easy but in terms of funeral policy that arrangement is loose funeral policy has got direct relation that is family funeral policies spouse uh, policy holder spouse children mother father mother in law father in law then that then become first line of insurance meaning it insures the immediate family members then funeral policy takes it a step further where it is able to insure extended family members now the concept of insurable interest exists now the extension applies the extended family members then it goes and insure uncle mother sister uh, their children so you can go all out as long as there is insurable interest but i think it's very critical to mention that the objective behind funeral policy was critical it was well conceived what is that objective the objective of having funeral policy or multiple funeral policies in the name of uh, relatives is that you are aware as a policy owner that if without this policy anyway when there is death in the family or in the extended families i'm the first one that they call because probably i was the first one to start working in the family because there are such generations or family members were in they are the first one to start working and as a consequence because they are the first one to start working then the family then they become the family back, back rock backbone meaning that the family members they rely on them when there is death or any circumstances uh, that affect different families they will call you and inform you then because you know that ordinarily when my relatives pass on they tell me on the basis that i should contribute financially then it is only natural to insure them and here edward touches on two really important parts of this case the cultural aspect and the reason rosemary chose to use funeral policies as her method of fraud so firstly that cultural bit as edward and mfondo said rosemary used her position as one of the people in her family who was first employed to ensure that she was in control of these funeral policies and because she was using funeral policies it was far easier for her to insure a wider group of people within her family thereby increasing her victim group one of the major questions asked by so many people is why would her family members not question her getting involved in funeral policies for them and that's the reason because it would have been entirely natural for her to do so and we'll get into the cultural aspects a lot deeper in another episode for me as a white person i can't speak for all white people but i do tend to think it's a common trend i might have funeral policies for my immediate family but rarely would i go as far as to insure my aunts and uncles and cousins unless those people were living with me and i was responsible for them but in many black african families this is far more the norm and what is considered immediate family is far wider than in some other cultures and rosemary knew that and used it to her own benefit when we lose a loved one the last thing we want to worry about is how we're going to pay for their funerals and in many african cultures funerals are days long ceremonies that are key to the proper grieving of the family edward says that there's a serious trend right now of people taking out funeral policies on family members and when that person passes away we're not talking about murder yeah 
the person is passing away of causes unrelated to the person with the policy, that beneficiary is taking a payout of 30,000 rand, for instance, and only contributing maybe a thousand rand to the funeral and pocketing the rest. Edward says that there are thousands of cases where instances like this are tearing families apart. Rosemary did something similar in at least one case, but she had actually murdered the victim in question there. The impact that this type of financial burden has on grieving loved ones is immense. Mfondo gives us some insight into the types of costs experienced and the deep importance of funerals. Nguni funerals tend to be very expensive because there is a mourning period that happens prior to the funeral where members of the community and those that knew the deceased come to offer their condolences to the family. During this mourning period, you have to account for feeding visitors, preparing the home itself, whether that be extensive cleaning or even structural repairs to the home. Travel to and from the mortuary, home affairs for the death certificate, and in some cases, travel to the offices of the insurer. Sometimes the body needs to be moved from one province to another, as the deceased may pass away in the area where they work, but maybe still have family living in a completely different town or province. Without community burial societies, it becomes difficult to cover the costs of these things and can often lead to costly delays. Another thing to consider is the time cost of these activities, especially when public transport is involved. This doesn't even take into account the cultural costs of funerals, the cleansing of the family and the purchase of animals that will be needed for cultural rites to be performed. Depending on where you are and the specific animal that you might need, it can cost anywhere from 2,000 to upwards of 12,000 rand per animal. After the funeral and depending on where the person has been buried, the family may even erect a tombstone and that price can also vary from 3,000 to 20,000 rand. If it's not done on the same day as the funeral, there is another event that takes place for this called the unveiling. Again, there are catering costs, travel costs, and because this is no longer a somber occasion, there could even be entertainment costs for this particular event. I want to preface this by saying that I am not Tsonga and don't have any direct relation to the Shitsonga nation. So my information is a combination of research, speaking to people who are Shitsonga, as well as my knowledge of Ndebele customs and traditions. Shitsonga is closely related to Isizulu, Xhosa, Swati and Ndebele. And we all fall under the Nguni subgroup. And as such, we share a lot of cultural practices, especially in cases of marriage, birth, and death. All of these life events are very community-centered and heavily involve contributions from family, both immediate and extended, as well as friends, neighbors, and the community at large. Contributions are not strictly money-related, but there is obviously an expectation that those with disposable income and the means to do so make a greater financial commitment to the planning and execution of the funeral, especially those that have policies in the name of the deceased, as, of course, these policies are often intended to help offset funeral costs, and they're not meant to be used as a means to enrich yourself. Life insurance itself is not something that is common in our cultures for a myriad of reasons, one of which being ulterior motives to getting life insurance against someone's life. It can be seen as a crass statement of putting monetary value on someone's life and in some circumstances, even trying to plan their death for your own self-enrichment. In contrast to this, there is a rising popularity of funeral policies because under funeral policies you can cover more people they do have a lower barrier to entry so they are easier to get than life insurance 
And the payout is usually quicker than with life insurance because it's meant to pay for the funeral. Another thing to consider is that funeral policies have a far lower monthly premium than life insurance, which is important when taking into account the socioeconomic conditions of most South Africans. We are aware that the cost of funerals differ from house to house. Those with financial resources will spend, but the minimum cost to run a funeral is anything less is 40,000 plus. That's a minimum 40, 50,000 rand plus. What drives the cost to that much is that one, within a communal area like villages, what normally happens is that when there is death in the household and death is announced that the, 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 a member, a family member has passed on on Sunday, from Monday, the community starts descending into the household with a view of having to offer their condolences. In such household, there will be prayer sessions and other related activities. And when the community pays a visit to the household, there is no way in which they can just come, drink water, and go. You need to feed them. Actually, in many places, every day in the morning, coffee, tea must be made with bread and scones, must be made to the, to the mourners who come to pay their respect and who come to strengthen the family. Two, lunch must be cooked. Three, dinner must be cooked. So if a member passed on on Sunday, that activity will happen the whole week until the burial on Saturday. When a family member dies on Thursday, passes on on Thursday, that family member is known that is short period to bury on Saturday. Then that member will be buried the following week Saturday. From the, de the date of announcement of death of a family member, then the activity carries on. For that week, the following week, the whole week, up until the burial the next Saturday. That process compound cost. That is why it is critical for many households to have funeral policies. Actually, I know as a matter of fact that majority of the households, funeral policies is their only area of insurance that they have. Because they are thinking that what if any of my family member or myself is to pass on? What will happen to my family members in the event we are faced with the cost of catering and taking care of logistics related to, to funerals? But over and above that, the cost of the funeral itself and the accessories that goes with it compound the cost. We are talking casket. We are talking tombstones. We are talking marquee. We are talking decorated chairs. We are talking the accessories that goes with a funeral. That can easily drive a funeral cost to 100,000, 150,000 rand. It's super expensive, but it's also deeply important to the family and those grieving. So funeral policies or community burial society setups are really vital. And this is what Rosemary robbed her family of. As we saw in the documentary, although she was one of the sort of senior members of the family, in most cases who people would have expected to be involved in the funerals, she didn't even attend most of them, and certainly didn't contribute any of the money she was pocketing. And I think that's why this case has so many levels of greed and criminality. Rosemary wasn't only killing her family members. She was also actively contributing to the ongoing pain and suffering of those who remained behind. After gathering information, watching the documentary and following the case itself, I honestly don't believe that what happened with Rosemary was a result of the manipulation of the insurance industry. Rosemary manipulated her loved ones and took advantage of those who trusted her so she could gain access to their personal information. Without their identity documents and the death certificates, it is unlikely that insurers would have paid out the claims. 
In the cases of Maurice and Zanele, she had direct and immediate access to their death documents because she is the one that ultimately identified the bodies at the morgue. I found it especially disturbing how she had an extreme theatrical display of grief with the death of Maurice before the body had even been identified. A cause of death had not yet been announced and she was thrashing about stating that they had killed her husband. What really saddens me is how she manipulated all those in her life and still did not give even a portion of her ill-gotten wealth back to them to improve their lives and circumstances. In the few years that these payouts were happening, she made over a million rand from it, tax-free, mind you, yet her family was and still is living in extreme poverty and under destitute conditions. I think because of her education, her status of employment, and even more so where she was employed, Rosemary held a lot of power in her family, and ultimately, that is what enabled her to be so successful in these crimes. And she did a really good job of totally abusing that power, I think. Unfortunately, Rosemary is not the first to take advantage of insurance policies for personal gain. We had a case in 2020 where a woman by the name of Debbie Fenter was murdered by her sister and brother-in-law for her life insurance after they had coerced her to make them the beneficiaries. At the time, Debbie was suffering from terminal cervical cancer. The difference between that particular case and Rosemary's is that Rosemary's was a case of using funeral policies to commit fraud instead of the standard life insurance fraud, which is what we are more familiar with. It is kind of scary to think that there are people out there with funeral policies against you without your knowledge, let alone your consent. All they really need to be able to take out these funeral policies against you is your ID number. It is totally terrifying. So we asked Edward to expand on this risk within the funeral policy industry and why it's so much easier to get one than life insurance. But even life insurance. Years ago, you had to sit in front of the representative from the company, prove your identity, do a whole range of blood tests. Now you just phone in and five minutes later, as long as you pay a premium, you've got life insurance. Life cover. It used to be difficult because pre-modernization, love cover, it was not easy for me to take a love cover in your name. Because one, I will need to produce your ID. You need to be present. And further, because you still need to undergo underwriting. So by underwriting, we mean you need to go and take bloods either by the doctor or a nurse will come and visit you. Now we see that uh, the there is modernization in the life insurance industry. And what is that modernization? That modernization is that now you can call and have life insurance in 10 minutes just through telephonic calls. So there is no longer underwriting upfront. Underwriting is when you are taken through medicals so that they, they can understand your medical record at a take at the time of take up, not in the event of claim. Currently, things are done differently. When you take up a life insurance through a telephone, you are postponing underwriting. Underwriting will be done in the event of death. So I found that really interesting. The life insurance industry has essentially figured out that they were spending far too much money and putting in too much effort up front to ensure that the person taking out the insurance was actually fit and healthy enough to comply with their policy standards. So what they're doing now is when you take up the insurance and pay the premiums, you're essentially agreeing that you are healthy enough to do so. When you die, the forensics departments of the insurance company will then commence an investigation into your health at the time of your death. And if the reason for your death contravened anything that was in their policy as an exclusion, your family will not be paid out. Yes, 
They've essentially shifted all the risk to you and your family. Pretty smart, actually. Funeral policies are extremely important financial catch nets for a huge portion of our population. They prevent people from getting into debt, which will inevitably negatively affect them for a lot of their lives. So we don't really want to make it too difficult for people to take out these policies. And we need to ensure that the average South African who doesn't have access to high-speed internet, large amounts of disposable income and time to travel around can actually still take these policies up relatively easily. There's relatively very little abuse of the insurance industry in South Africa. Most insurers do not make the payout process easy, despite how easy the sign-up process may be. My biggest concern in introducing changes to the industry is the added difficulty it would cause for the underprivileged and underserved communities. I don't think it would be feasible to make funeral policies as strict as life insurance policies. Our high rates of unemployment and poverty have resulted in a need for cross-family cover where in cases where a whole family in the community is not employed or not financially able, it becomes necessary for other families in that area to include them in their own funeral policies. At the end of the day, funerals are not strictly a family event but a whole neighborhood, village, or sometimes even town event. A change that can be implemented is that instead of paying out cash to the beneficiary, the insurer themselves can be the one to make payments to vendors, except for such instances where the vendor is not formally registered entity, so like the traditional consultants needed or the places where most of the animals needed for the funerals will be purchased. In those instances, I think that cash can be given, and I think this way will even further reduce insurance fraud. I think insurers should also take up the responsibility of cross-checking policies and cross-checking beneficiaries within the insurance industry to ensure that a case such as this doesn't happen again, where someone is able to take out multiple policies against multiple people over a short period of time and continue to be paid for those policies over that short period of time. The insurance industry needs to do a better job of monitoring um, the bank accounts of of beneficiaries. In as much as we can say that insurance fraud on funeral policies is low, we actually can't be 100% certain fighting for money and the possessions of the deceased and creating animosity and tension as a result is extremely taboo, and I don't think very many people would be willing to rock the boat if they had suspicions about family members using funerals for payout processes. Rosemary got away with it for so long because even though family members were suspicious, they unfortunately did not have the support to make their suspicions known, and I'm sure many feared that they would be ostracized if they made such extreme and what would be seen as heinous accusations. Now, neither Mfundo nor I are insurance experts. So we asked Edward to weigh in on this too. How do we safeguard this practice of funeral policy being claimed by one person whenever there is death within the either direct or extended family uh, members. That one is simple. I always want to uh, bring in the banking industry, banks. When a married couple, one of the spouse pass on, they say the husband pass on, the wife of the late can never go to the bank and ask the bank to open the bank account of the spouse or the late husband so that she can see how much is in that bank account, equally in relation to investments in the bank, without that spouse having to produce a letter of authority, which she would have received from the master of the high court. So the letter of authority is the key that gives the spouse, the the surviving spouse, the license to open the bank account 
of the late spouse so that she or he can see how much the spouse has into those accounts. Only letter of authority. No one will have a right of authority to, to go to the bank and say, open, I want to see the one. Uh, open that bank account. So we must then, in the insurance industry, the reform that I'm talking about in the main relate to the safeguards, increasing the safeguard. And what is that safeguard? That safeguard relate to now ensuring that the under the beneficiary of extended family member, the beneficiaries become the holder of letter of authority. What do I mean by this? Here I am. I'm the policy owner. I've insured 15 people. I am paying 3,000 per month. Yes, I am the policy owner. I'm the premium payer, but I'm not the life insured. I've insured my extended family members. Therefore, if any of my family members pass on, I must not be the beneficiary. The family member through where death has occurred must become the beneficiary. And how do they do it? They must all come in to the insurance company where I've insured my extended family and they must produce a letter of authority, meaning the one that has been given a letter of authority is the one that then by default becomes the beneficiary. And not necessarily that the money will go to the one with the letter of authority. The insurer must ask that person who's been given the letter of authority by the court to go and open a late estate account in the name of the late. We are, we are, we are tightening up the, the loose ends here. They are the one who must unlock the benefits from the policy. Because the policy uh, insurer must pay the money that was insured by me as the policyholder to the late estate account. Then, once we do that, we have cut this practice on its head. I really do hope that this is something that can be implemented. Edward also says that he really feels that this extra step in the process will only be too much for those with nefarious intentions and for those who are actually just wanting to make sure they have money to pay for funerals, it won't be that much of a hassle. Until then, there's always the possibility that there could be another Rosemary out there right now, racking up the funeral policies and the victims. So we wanted to know what exactly can we do to protect ourselves right now? How on earth would we know if someone's taking out policies in our name without our knowledge? Edward has some advice. Currently, it is possible that people are insured and they don't know. The question is, where do they go if they want to know what they are insured? There is a company called Astute. Astute in the insurance space is a company that has got capability to consolidate the insured. So meaning that upon consent, and you are able to get this from a financial advisor or insurance house where you sign an astute consent, then through that consent, then one can approach astute. And astute will be able to check, give me a report of all insurances in my name within different insurance houses. It can't pick up because right now there are burial societies, there are different schemes that are under are cooking underneath. So it picks up only uh, organizations which are within big insurance companies. Then it can pick them up. Edward also recommends that any family who suffered the loss of a loved one immediately applies to the master of the high court for a letter of authority and open a late estate bank account. This will ensure that any policies that are held on the deceased's name will pay out into that bank account to ensure transparency. It's easy to feel like a case like this is some wild story that could never happen to anyone you know. But whether it's funeral policies or life insurances, 
we do regularly see cases where people are killed for the financial benefits of the murderer. Just like we should be regularly keeping an eye on our credit record to make sure no one's stealing our identity, perhaps if you're in a rocky relationship or even just have that one family member who seems a little suspicious, it's worth doing this check to make sure you don't have policies against your name that you don't know about. And even that the policies you have been told about are actually for the amounts you've agreed to. In many insurance murders, we see a spouse or partner agreeing to a specific amount policy, and then just a few months before their murder, that amount is suddenly increased dramatically without their knowledge. And that's a giant red flag. Maybe it's a little paranoid. I don't know. But I do wish someone had been able to give Rosemary and Blorvu's victims this advice. That's a wrap for episode one of Rosemary's Hit List, the official companion podcast. Be sure to follow the podcast wherever you're listening to be alerted when new episodes drop over the next few days. Next time on Rosemary's Hit List, the official companion podcast. How did Rosemary's job as a police officer help her to commit her crimes, if at all? The blue shield is cops protecting cops. Who was protecting and empowering Rosemary and Glovu? No, you know, I was a cop for many years. It's like a family. Sometimes, if someone stuffed up, he looks the other way. <laughs> Mostly with the small stuff, you know. But I do know of a few times when it was like, okay, just make sure no one finds out. <laughs> <laughs>